Welcome to Least of These, where I cover the cases that need it most, because every life matters and everyone deserves justice. I'm your host, Leah D. Today, I'll be bringing you part eight of the case of serial killer Willie Picton in Vancouver, Canada. Let's get right to it. Once again, I'll be referencing Stevie Cameron's book, On the Farm, Robert William Picton, and the tragic story of Vancouver's missing women for much of this episode. Investigative journalist slash author Stevie Cameron covered the Picton case extensively. I can't recommend enough that you pick up a copy of her book. We'll get right back into it. 1997 was the worst year by far, and 12 women had gone missing from the downtown east side. There was a panic in the streets, and whispers among the women work in the low track that maybe Uncle Willie had something to do with it. The Vancouver police, however, were dismissive and seemingly uninterested in getting to the bottom of exactly what was going on. We left off on Christmas Eve of 97. And that stunt Willie pulled with the pigs, releasing them and then watching the cops run around trying to catch them. While Willie Picton giggled to himself as he saw the whole thing documented in the papers, Carrie Caskey celebrated Christmas with her family. They were all looking forward to it. She arrived to the family home on Christmas Day, but when they saw her, they were immediately worried. She was rail thin, and it was obvious that her addiction had gotten way beyond her control. They pleaded with her to get help, and they were willing to do just about anything to help her get her life back. And she promised them she would. She wanted so desperately to be herself again. Carrie was 38 years old and a mother of three girls. Her girls needed their mom back. Her sister Val recalled to the Maple Ridge Pit Meadow News, Carrie said to her, I'm sorry, I don't know how this has happened. She fell into her sister's arms and Val told her, we're going to fix this. But Carrie and Val would never get that opportunity. A short time later, Val called Carrie and planned a girl's day together. They'd hang out in Vancouver, go for a walk and get some Chinese food. They planned out all the details and Carrie was seemingly excited to spend time with her sister. The day came and Val called Carrie to let her know she was on her way, but she didn't pick up. That was odd, so she headed right over to Carrie's hotel room on the downtown east side. But Carrie wasn't there. Val checked the hospitals, no Carrie. She called the police to see if maybe she was in jail, but she wasn't there either. And further, her last welfare check hadn't been cashed, and there was still money sitting untouched in her bank account. Her sister did her best detective work and retraced Carrie's steps, looking for any clues on where she might be. The best she could work out was that Carrie was last seen on January 7, 1998. Just a few days into the new year, and already another woman was missing. 
She wasted no time and went straight to the Vancouver police with everything she had just learned. But they just weren't interested in taking another missing persons report. According to Val's account in On the Farm, a receptionist at VPD had actually told her that the women were just, quote, junkies and hookers. Don't waste our time. But of course, Val didn't give up. And on January 29th, Carrie Kosky was finally listed as missing. Roughly a month later, and another woman would vanish. 46-year-old mother Inga Monique Hall was last seen on February 26, 1998. An official missing persons report was made five days later. There really isn't much known about the circumstances surrounding Inga's disappearance. What we do know is that Inga was born in Germany. She was a mother of two and had two grandchildren, according to the Globe and Mail. We also know that she was far from the last woman to go missing. Around the same time, Renata Bond started thinking. It had been a while since she had left her friend Sherry at the Picton farm. Remember? We talked all about Renata and Dave Picton and their little deal. You know, the one where Renata would bring girls to Dave for Willie, and in exchange, he'd give her a hundred bucks and a little dope. It was in September of 97 when that whole deal was first worked out. Sherry Irving was the first woman that we know of Renata had offered up to Dave for Willie. And she had that bad feeling that night she left her at the farm. Here it was, March of 98. Half a year had passed, and she hadn't seen or heard from Sherry again. But that didn't concern her too much, because Sherry was supposed to leave that night with her male friend and catch the ferry over to Vancouver Island. Only that had never happened. Renata learned that Sherry wasn't in Vancouver Island, and she had never caught that ferry. So she went to the Vancouver police to report Sherry Irving missing. And she told them all about Dave Picton and that late-night trip to the farm. It's unclear, however, if the police ever checked it out. Shocking, I know. Sarah DeVries would be the next woman to vanish. Sarah Jane DeVries was adopted at just 11 months old by Jan and Pat DeVries. Father Jan was a professor at the University of British Columbia, and her mom Pat was a nurse. They had two biological children, Maggie and Peter, and had adopted two more, Mark followed by Sarah. She was the baby and had three older siblings, an extended family who doted on her and treated her just like the treasure she was. But kids can be cruel. Sarah was bullied through school. You see, the DeVries lived in a predominantly white, affluent neighborhood. And Sarah was different in many ways. For starters, she was a mix of several races, black, aboriginal, Mexican Indian, and white. She loved dressing up in the latest fashions and knew how to accentuate her beauty with makeup like nobody's business. It goes without saying that heads swiveled when she walked by. And that was just on the surface. She was beautiful through and through, kind, funny, intelligent, and a brilliant writer. Sarah was a flamingo in a flock of pigeons, and we all know about pigeons. Sometimes they shit on you just to ruin your day. As the bullying increased, she became withdrawn. And then things got worse. 
Her parents divorced when she was still in elementary school, and Sarah blamed herself. Her life slowly began to unravel, and by the time she was in her late teens, she had a heroin and cocaine addiction. She met a drug dealer and pimp named Bernie Dubois and moved in with him into a house on the downtown east side known for drugs and sex work. In 1990, she gave birth to a daughter who was taken from the hospital and raised by Sarah's mother with her blessing. Sarah knew she couldn't give her the life she deserved at that moment, as much as she probably wanted to. Six years later, her son was born and he too was raised by Sarah's mother and Aunt Jean. By this time, the two sisters had moved in together at Jean's place after the death of their mother. Sarah's children were raised surrounded by family and love. And writing was something that ran in the family. Jean had written more than 30 books, and Sarah kept a journal documenting her journey and a glimpse into her life on the low track. One particular entry describes a night in which she was violently and brutally attacked by a client, and it nearly cost her her life. She was in front of the Astoria Hotel looking for a customer. A man pulled up and she hopped in. They discussed payment and the guy seemed nice enough. He then asked her name. She told him and all hell broke loose. He started asking all kinds of questions. How old are you? Where are you from? And then oddly repeating her name. She recalled in her journal, Sarah this and Sarah that. It started to scare the hell out of me. It was like he was trying to psych himself up to do something. She noticed that the door handles on the inside of the car had been removed, and she was trapped. He drove to a remote area, and Sarah tried to get out as soon as the car stopped, but he grabbed her and brutally beat her. He drove off and left her in the middle of nowhere to die. But she survived. According to CBC.ca, her sister Maggie would later testify in an inquiry about the Picton case that Sarah had made it to a police station, but officers there turned her out without even offering her a blanket to cover her half-naked body. Maggie DeVries went on to say, It was that moment when she was in dire distress. It was the one opportunity, perhaps in her whole life, that police had to respond in a helpful manner to her. Instead, they humiliated her, they sent her back out to experience more violence, and they sent a very clear message to her that this wasn't a good idea. Another opportunity by the police slipped away, and now Sarah knew they couldn't have cared less about the women of the downtown east side. Women just like her. Maggie further stated to the commission, I think that had the police taken advantage of all those moments and built that trust in those relationships, that information might have been more forthcoming. That could have led to Robert Picton being arrested earlier and could mean that there'd be women still living and breathing in the world today who are now dead. Again, according to CBC.ca. It's clear that Sarah feared being attacked yet again and had taken note of the women vanishing from the downtown east side. In another journal entry written in 1995, titled Am I Next?, Sarah wrote, Is he watching me now? 
stalking me like a predator and its prey, waiting, waiting for some perfect spot, time, or my stupid mistake. How does one choose a victim? Good question. If I knew that, I would never get snuffed. Sarah DeVries' writings are documented in a book written by her sister Maggie titled Missing Sarah. Three years after that entry was penned, Sarah would vanish. In 1998, Sarah DeVries was 28 years old. She was well-known on the downtown east side. Even through her addiction, she stood out. And it wasn't just her looks. She was into fitness and would frequently put on her rollerblades and skate through the low track in order to keep in shape. There just weren't many people rollerblading through that part of Vancouver. But Sarah, she marched to the beat of her own drum. The days leading up to her disappearance are documented in Cameron's book and come from several of Sarah's friends and her common-law husband, Bernie Dubois. There's a little bit of a discrepancy on the dates and exactly what happened when and in which order. Let's pick it up on the night of April 13, 1998 with the account of Wayne Lang. Wayne Lang was a longtime friend of Sarah DeVry. They had previously been romantically involved. And while that was no longer a thing, they remained extremely close. Wayne still loved Sarah. He would have done practically anything for her. Sometime on the night of April 13, 1998, the two talked on the phone and made arrangements for Wayne to pick Sarah up at the Beacon Hotel. He drove her back to his place. She got a bite to eat and they chatted, as they frequently did. She packed up some clothes she had left over at his place and tossed them into a pillowcase. Wayne drove her back to the Beacon Hotel. She promised to call him later and they parted ways. According to Bernie, in the early morning hours of April 14th, Sarah stopped by. He couldn't recall the time but did recall the sun was coming up. She was there to grab some clothes, particularly something warm. She was dressed in a white frilly shirt, black miniskirt with black leggings underneath. It was in the low 40s that morning, and that white frilly shirt just wasn't going to cut it. Bernie gave her his black bomber-style jacket. She was in a hurry, but promised him she'd be back. You see, his birthday was a day before on the 13th, and Sarah hadn't been there. She told him she'd be back to celebrate with him. She was in such a rush that when she left, she had grabbed her white makeup bag but had forgotten to take a small black purse she had set down on the coffee table. When Bernie noticed, he chased after her, but she was gone. That would be the last time he ever saw her. Sylvia, a friend of Sarah's, recalled seeing her after Wayne Lang had dropped her off at the Beacon Hotel. According to Sylvia, as documented in On the Farm, she and Sarah had done a speedball together and then had both headed out to work. Sylvia recalled her story to Daniel Wood for Elm Street Magazine in 1998, stating, Sarah stayed on the northwest corner by the store. I walked across to the southeast corner by the dentist. We stood around for about 15 to 20 minutes. Several calls drove by, back and forth, around and around. A light blue four-door car with a white vinyl roof drove by me a little slower, proceeded east on Hastings, turned right on Hawks, and went around the block, I presume, 
and pulled up to me on the corner of Princess and Hastings on Princess. He asked me to get in the car and go around the block. I got in. Sarah and I talked of meeting up after we broke, so I looked back to the corner. Sarah stood on to see if she got picked up. We were also trying to spot each other. My date and I proceeded around the block and talked business, and then agreed to disagree, and he turned back onto Princess from Pender to drop me off. I looked for Sarah and saw no one. She was gone. I could see no cars, nothing. I got out of the car on Princess and Hastings, all the time looking back and forth. I don't mean to sound melodramatic, but I knew something was wrong. The whole street was empty. No cars, no people, no nothing. It was really quiet. I felt really scared and alone. I knew she wasn't going to meet me. I knew she was gone. It must have been just a few moments earlier that someone picked her up and stopped long enough at Bernie's place for her to run in and grab Bernie's leather jacket in such a hurry that she left her purse behind. She still had her white makeup bag with her. Regardless of whether it was the 13th or 14th, Sarah DeVry was never seen again. Her friends on the downtown east side and Wayne Lang immediately thought something was wrong. She was such a powerful presence. Her absence was felt instantly. No one had heard from her. Her cards, pictures, letters, and journal had been left behind. She had a welfare check that hadn't been cashed. Something just wasn't right. Wayne Lang went right down to the neighborhood safety office and reported his concern. They referred him to a couple of officers, but he was promptly dismissed. But Wayne wasn't going down like that. He took matters into his own hands and began plastering posters all over the area. He called Sarah's friends and her mother and sister and just about anyone she knew. He walked the downtown east side and questioned anyone he came across about where Sarah could be. He tried to file a missing persons report with the Vancouver Police Department's Missing Persons Unit, but was turned down since he wasn't technically related to Sarah. Her sister Maggie was able to file that report, and when investigators contacted Maggie seeking information about Sarah's disappearance, she directed them to Wayne as he was one of the last people to see her, and an investigator got into contact. It wasn't like he was that hard to get a hold of. He'd practically been beating down the doors of the police station, begging for someone to do something. Even after speaking to Wayne, seemingly nothing was done to look for Sarah. So her friends and family reached out to the media for help. Several stories were ran one in the Vancouver province and the other in the sun. Some of the reporters were starting to notice the clusters of women disappearing. Others simply looked the other way. Lindsay Kynes at the sun had written a story on the disappearance of Janet Henry the year prior in 97 and had just done a follow-up piece on the one-year anniversary of when Janet vanished. As he spoke with Sarah's family, he started thinking maybe this could all be connected. He began researching all of the disappearances. And just like that, another woman went missing. 
Sheila Catherine Egan was just 19 years old. She had shoulder-length blonde hair and blue eyes. And although she struggled, she always remained in contact with her family, particularly her sister. According to the Doe Network, she was last seen on July 25, 1998 at 4 in the morning, hitchhiking in Vancouver. There's not much publicly known about Sheila's disappearance or the circumstances surrounding it. And even as the years have ticked on, not a trace of evidence has been found. Her mother, Shirley Ann, revealed to Stevie Cameron the lack of leads on Sheila's case, stating, We've never had one possible lead from the police. Lindsay Kynes wasn't the only one putting it all together either. Constable Dave Dixon served as a community police officer for the downtown east side. He knew most of the people who lived down there, to include the sex workers. That was his beat. The summer of 98, he popped into Doug McKay Dunn's office. You see, McKay Dunn was his boss, the one in charge of the community-based policing at VPD that covered Dixon's zone. Dixon threw it all out there, telling Dunn that he noticed an unusual number of women missing from the low track. It had drastically rose since 1995, and he was getting constant calls from family members of the women. They just didn't believe their loved ones had simply walked away. He told him all about the uncashed welfare checks, identification, and personal items left behind by many of the women. Dixon told him that he looked through the bad date list at the drop-in center, and even though he didn't have anyone particular in mind, something was definitely off. He expressed his frustration because he had gone to others at BPD and even the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, but he had been quickly dismissed. McKay Dunn listened intently to everything Dickinson had to say, and then agreed. But they'd have to play it smart in order to get the higher officials at VPD to take them seriously. He told Dixon they needed to bring Kim Rosmo in. Y'all remember Kim Rosmo and Project Eclipse, right? Rosmo is the pioneer of geographical profiling, and he had long suspected a serial killer was operating. He had put together that team for Project Eclipse years earlier and briefed those investigating the missing and murdered women, but nothing had happened. He was ignored. Rosmo was out for the summer. That whole geographic profiling thing was really taken off, and he was out speaking not just in Canada, but around the globe. Even though Rosmo was out, a call was made from the acting inspector at the time, Jeremy Field, and Rosmo agreed to take another look as soon as he got back into town. At the same time, Lindsay Kynes had gotten down to business and ran several more stories, this time linking the missing women's cases with headlines like, Police Target Big Increase in Missing Women Cases. He boldly asked questions of the Vancouver police, but again, they were quick to dismiss any indication that a serial killer was operating on the downtown east side. Spokeswoman for the department at the time, Ann Drennan, stated, There is no indication that a serial killer is preying on the women. Going on to say, 
normal police procedure would be followed in investigating their cases. And further, that there are literally hundreds and hundreds of men cruising the streets every night. So you'd have to say it's almost like searching for a needle in a haystack. While VPD deflected, Kine's stories on the missing women soon uncovered a huge clue. And it all started with the phone call to Sarah DeVries' friend, Wayne Lang, on July 28, 1998. Wayne hadn't stopped looking for Sarah since she vanished in April. In fact, he had launched an investigation with her family and friends, all of his own. And with tips coming in, he had started recording all of his phone calls. He answered the phone that day in July, and on the other end was a man named Bill Hiscox. And what he had to say was jaw-dropping. Wayne flipped the recorder on as soon as Bill told him he was calling about the story that had ran in the sun on Sarah DeVries. It's a damn good thing he did. Bill Hiscox told Wayne that he had previously worked for Dave Picton in 1997 up until early in 1998, after he was introduced by Lisa Yelds. Yep, that Lisa. None other than Willie Picton's BFF. Bill was down on his luck. He knew Lisa and considered her his foster sister, like family to him. A feeling that wasn't mutual if you had asked Lisa Yelts, but nevertheless close enough that she had given him a ride to the Picton farm so he could get a job there with Dave. Lisa would later go so far as to describe Bill Hiscox as dangerous and say she wanted nothing to do with him. But her best friend was an actual serial killer, so I'm not sure Lisa Yelts' judge of character can be relied upon. Anyhow, after Lisa made the introduction, Bill was hired to work for Dave Picton at PNB Salvage. Bill told Wayne that he had spent a lot of time at the Picton farm and got to know Dave and, more importantly, his brother Willie very well. Stating about Willie, he's quite the strange character, very, very strange. He has a 25-acre farm, a lot of heavy-duty machinery out there and stuff. You know easy places to hide things out there. His name's Willie. He's the owner of P&B Salvage here in Surrey. They salvage crap from old houses and stuff like that. He's really a strange character. He went on to talk about that attack on Sandra Ringwald, you know, the one Willie never faced any charges for. He also told Wayne all about how Willie frequented the downtown east side looking for girls and how everything had started to click. Bill then informed Wayne of something Lisa Yelts had told him that now, in light of the news stories, really haunted him. According to Bill, Lisa had once confided in him something very disturbing about Willie Picton. She said, Billy, you wouldn't believe the IDs and shit out in that trailer. There's women's clothes out there. There's purses. You know, what's that guy doing? It is like really weird. IDs, purses, women's clothing, what? As if that wasn't bone chilling enough, what I'm about to tell you next will make your head spin. 
Wayne Lang wasn't the first person Bill Hiscox had told his story to. Oh no, not by a long shot. He had informed none other than Al Howlett of the Vancouver Police Department, who just so happened to be working Sarah DeVries' case. And he was told Willie would be looked into. But was he? Because Sarah DeVries and Sheila Egan certainly weren't the last women to disappear from the low track. And Bill Hiscox wouldn't be the only person in the Picton inner circle to come forward with information about Willie. But that, my friends, we'll have to wait until next week because we're running out of time. But before we go, I'd like to leave you with a poem written by Sarah DeVries. Sarah wrote this in the fall of 97, just months before she vanished. And I think it speaks for itself. Woman's body found beaten beyond recognition. You sip your coffee. Taking a drag of your smoke. Turning the page. Taking a bite of your toast. Just another day. Just another death. Just one more thing you so easily forget. You and your soft, sheltered life just go on and on, for nobody special from your world is gone. Just another day, just another death. Just another Hastings Street whore sentenced to death. The judge's gavel already fallen, sentence already passed. But you? You just sip your coffee, washing down your toast. She was a broken-down angel. A child lost with no place. A human being in disguise. She touched my life. She was somebody. She was no whore. She was somebody special who just lost her way. She was somebody fighting for life, trying to survive. A lonely lost child who died. In the night, all alone, scared. Gasping for air. Sarah Jane DeVries you can find more of Sarah's powerful poems and journal writings in the book, Missing Sarah, written by her sister, Maggie DeVries. It's a beautiful yet tragic story that paints a picture of life for Sarah and many of the women from the downtown east side. I highly recommend grabbing a copy. I also want to note that Maggie DeVries has gone on to be a huge voice for sex workers and their rights. You can find Maggie at MaggieDevree.com. That's M-A-G-G-I-E-D-E-V-R-I-E-S.com. I'll link everything in the show notes. Stevie Cameron's book On the Farm, Robert William Picton, and the Tragic Story of Vancouver's Missing Women can be purchased on Amazon or pretty much wherever you get your books. Grab a copy. You won't be disappointed. As always, you can find more information on my Instagram at least underscore of these or my Facebook at least of these. New episodes drop every Thursday. Make sure you hit that subscribe button so you'll never miss an episode. I'll be bringing you part nine of the Pig Farmer series next week, and I can't wait. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. If you know something, say something. And until next time, be good to each other.
In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. <laughs> 